Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Um, if you have your Bibles, this is from Psalm 135, verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths that cannot speak, eyes that they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Uh, pray with me. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so... <clears throat> When Michelle asked me to do a chapel on identity, I think my, my reply immediately was like, is there not an easier topic that I could address than identity? <laughs> it's a really tough issue. Um, it's something that I spent about six years studying, and in the beginning I thought it was pretty simple, and then as the more that I worked on it, the more complicated it became, which is basically like anything in academics, right? Um, but this quote comes to mind. It's that there is a pathology built into the very roots of our existence, inherited through our birth, and that is fear of the other. This comes from a, uh, a Greek Orthodox theologian. And what he's trying to say is that basically Adam and Eve, that the sin of Adam and Eve is really just a fear of the other par excellence. It's the fear of God himself. And so we're not satisfied with just simply being in a relationship with God, that we want to be God. We don't just want to be like God, we want to be Him. We want to usurp God and create ourselves rather than just being a reflection of the image of God. We want to be God, okay? And so he basically says that this is, you could travel through human history and see how this sort of identity complex, we no longer want to just say our identity rests in God and we're a reflection of Him. We want to actually be Him and what we end up reflecting then is just really an image of ourselves, which if we're honest, isn't that glorious. Now, identity isn't a new concept. It isn't something that people just recently started discussing. This is five centuries before Christ. You had a Greek comedian. I know it's weird. They had comedians five centuries before Christ, but he came up with a, uh, a play, and it basically has a debtor and a banker. And the debtor goes to the banker, and he's talking about a loan. And the banker says, listen, you need to pay me my money. And he says, well, I mean, the person who borrowed that money has undergone so much change. And so I'm hardly the same person that I was when I borrowed that money, and therefore, could I really be held accountable for paying it back? And so he's really discussing this concept, right? Is identity fixed or is it fluid? And this exists five centuries before Christ, and the banker responds to him by simply looking at him and then getting really close to him and then slapping him in the face. And he says, why did you do that? And he said, well, you can't honestly be upset with me. For the person who slapped you has undergone so much change, and how could I hardly be held responsible for hitting you when I'm hardly the same person standing before you now? And so, five centuries before Christ, people were discussing this concept of identity. Listen, the church has wrestled with this. 
We're supposed to believe that through our baptism, right, the church fathers would call it both the tomb and the womb. It's the place where we go to die, and it's the place where we go to be born anew. That we are, right, When we are in Christ, the old things have passed away, all things have become new. We're a new creation. Even our sort of identifications of Jew or Gentile or male or female or slave or free, those, those identifications become secondary to the fact that we are actually one in Christ. But even the church itself struggled with this. I was in Morocco last week, and I was speaking with a Moroccan believer, and he was telling me about how he had become a Christian, and he went to Spain. So this comes from the Spanish Inquisition, right? Real highlight of Christian history. Um, During the Spanish Inquisition, if you were a Muslim and you became a Christian, there was a real question about whether or not you could actually serve in church leadership, because could you really trust that they were a new creation? And so Muslims were barred largely from having any role in church leadership. And here I was in Morocco talking with a Moroccan believer who had been a believer for 20 years. Until this day, he still struggles with Christians in Spain because he went to Spain to do his Christian training. And they really questioned, is he really a believer? Can we really have him uh, serve in some sort of leadership capacity? So this isn't new. And the church has been deeply entrenched in it for a long time. The concept of identity rested with the early church and the soul. We believe that when we come to Christ, that we really truly can be held accountable for all of our uh, sins as a child, as as a young adult throughout our life, because we're the same. It's fixed, and it's fixed within the soul. But at some point during the Enlightenment, this doesn't really become, it's kind of archaic. And so they want to rest identity in something else. And we've got guys like John Locke coming up with personal identity. And that's where you start to see identity shift from being in the soul, and it shifts towards consciousness. And so you know who you are because you have memory, right? You, I assume, all know who you are this morning. You're the same person that was when you went to bed last night because there's some sort of memory. And so we've been deeply uh, affected by this sort of thinking, and, and personal identity sort of takes the... the the stage during the Enlightenment. It's not long after John Locke that you have Carl Linnaeus. Now, you may not know who Carl Linnaeus is, but you all studied Carl Linnaeus. Carl Linnaeus is the one that creates that taxonomy sheet that you had to study where you have genus and species and subspecies, and it's how you identify everything. He actually called himself the second Adam, which is is pretty, you know, that's a big statement, right? If Christ is the second Adam and, and Carl Linnaeus says he's the second Adam because he's naming everything, right? Categorizing everything. And it doesn't take long where he goes from plants to animals and he eventually lands on humans and he starts classifying humans. And so what he did was he basically took the same system and said, we need to look at sort of the identification things, things that we can see. So he classified humans based on skin color. And then from there, he went on to education. And of course, the white people were the most educated for Carl Linnaeus because that was his tribe. And so he uh, started classifying people. And this is sort of the basis of where we get a lot of the racism that follows. But the church, again, deeply entrenched in this line of thinking. Now, I love Google Ingram. You can see what shifts there's been in society when when words take on a whole new uh, gusto. So right here. I wish, does this thing work? Yeah, right here you start to see a massive movement towards the study of identity. Why is that? Well, because there was a Second World War, you had mass migration, and you had President Roosevelt saying, listen, there are no hyphenated Americans. And understanding him charitably, what he was trying to say is that there really is just an American. He didn't like the idea of Asian American, African American, and so he said there should be no hyphenated Americans, and they wanted to create a supra-identity. And Listen, 
you may not know it, but the super identity is deeply embedded in our Christian thinking, particularly in the United States. The super identity was American, <laughs> right? This is our identity. It's a, it's, a, it's a deep movement towards nationalism. And so the church gets swept up into this idea of nationalism. And listen, guys, we're still swept up in this idea of nationalism. And so this becomes the identity framework. Now, for you guys, you'll see that even in the 40s and 50s, there's not really a movement towards this idea of a true self, but identity shifts again from being an outward expression back to an inward expression. And now it becomes the search for authenticity. Everybody's looking for who their true self is, right? Identity is found inward, and I need to find my truth and myself. And you have other... Oh. Uh, my truth, for example, nobody would have been talking about their truth because your truth doesn't really matter, right? <laughs> but nowadays, your truth is the most important truth, right? It is the thing that defines you. And so our identity is now being rooted in sort of a, our own self-exploration. Um, in 2015, identity became the word of the year. When anytime there is a word of the year, you should pay attention. It became the word of the year because in 2015, we had a lot of things happen. You had the, the racist killing um, of Charleston church members. You had the Bataclan bombing in France, and the question became, can a Muslim truly be a French person? You had uh, Bruce Jenner becoming Caitlyn Jenner and even receiving the ESPY Award for Bravery. You had uh, the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage. So you have all of these things happening in 2015, and that's when identity becomes a real buzzword again. So sociologists have always said identity is not an issue until it is. And usually it's when we start questioning concepts of identity. Now, it would be really easy, and I see it all the time, where Christians, guys, it kind of feels like the Pharisee, right? Like beating our chest and saying, well, at least we're not that confused. But maybe we are. Maybe we are really confused. Maybe we are equally confused about what the concept of identity is and what it means to be in Christ. Oftentimes we look at identity as being what I think should be called an identification. Because there are many things that are quite fluid and change. Hopefully, you know, you're growing as a person and things are shifting in the ways in which you look at things. But really the thing that's fixed is your personhood. The thing that makes you you and not anyone else. If you're going to make your identity in sexuality, in gender, in political, in uh, your, your denomination, whatever it is that you're going to rest that identity in, you might want to reconsider even using the term identity. You might just want to say it's an identification. And don't assume that everybody's identification with something is that important. Somebody may have a certain ethnic background, and that may be very important to them, and it may not. Somebody may have a particular religious background, that may be important to them, it may not. So when I'm thinking in terms of identity, I, I, I land on this. It's probably really heretical to have a golden calf in the, in the chapel, but I, it really brings home the point, so I hope that's okay. Um, what the psalmist is saying, what the psalmist is saying is that these idols, they're made by human hands, right? They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have mouths, but they don't speak. It's no coincidence that we see this trace throughout the prophets. It's constantly referred to in the book of Isaiah. Ezekiel says that we've set up idols in our hearts. And it's really easy, again, to beat your chest and say, well, I've never made an idol. I've never taken anything with silver and gold and shaped it and worshipped it and bowed down to it. But the problem is idolatry is something that is set up in the heart as well. 
The early church fathers used to say it's not the idols of stone or wood. It's the idols of the heart that are concerning. And the thing is, we don't know our own hearts, and so we can easily set up an idol in our heart and not even know it. And all the while go about worshiping an idol. All the while we think we're worshiping God. The thing about the golden calf, you can ask your Hebrew professors, your Old Testament professors, they don't think it's an idol. They think it's Yahweh. And you even say it that way. This is Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. So you can have all the right words, you can have all the right language, and all the while be worshiping wrongly. And this is concerning. This is concerning for me. It should be concerning for you. I like the way that A.W. Tozer says it. A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our minds when we think, oh, I forgot about this one. Okay. (laughs) You don't have to think very hard about what I was worshiping. Think about it. You begin to look like the things that you worship. It wouldn't be very hard for you to assume what I was like as a teenager and what I was like growing up uh, only to look at this picture. I mean, you could just pretty much take any sort of rock star from the 70s, which I was pretty obsessed with, and look. I started to actually look like the thing that I worshipped. And so when we think about idols of the heart, A.W. Tozer says it very well. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's because we are prone to create idols of God. We are prone to create God into an idol that does our own bidding. Um, The the reformers, they they moved it from the heart to the head because of, you know, it's the enlightenment. And at that point, you're saying that the, the mind, John Calvin says, is a perpetual idol factory. And so every one of us is constantly faced with the reality that we might think that we're worshiping God, but we might be worshiping an idol. So I was trying to think of what are some of the common idols that we struggle with. Uh, I'll be honest with you guys. The idol for me after I came to Christ became missions. One of the ways that you can determine what the idols of your heart are is what are you willing to create human sacrifice for? Now, I get it. I didn't try to sacrifice a human in you know, on an altar or anything. But I will never forget the day that my wife came to me. We were living on the mission field, and she came to me, and she was deeply depressed. She couldn't see light in just about anything. And she said to me, how long are we going to stay here? And I said very sternly, until the job is done. We came here to plant a church. We're not leaving until a church is planted. That's what God's called us to do. And she says, I don't think I can do that. And I said, why? And she was very honest with me, and she said, because I don't even know if I believe anymore. I mean, she was a bruised reed, just right on the edge of breaking. She was a dimly lit wick, ready to be snuffed out. And instead of joining her in that space, I looked her right across the table, dead in the eye, and I said, then maybe it's time for you to go home. Maybe you need, this is the stupidest thing I've ever said to my wife, maybe you need to go home and you need to get things right. Maybe you need to see a counselor. And she just cried and I just got upset. And then my best friend came to me and he said, what are you doing, man? I said, well, I'm staying here. I don't care if she goes home. I don't care if the rest of the team goes home. We came here, we have a mission and I am not leaving. And he told me, he said, I'll stay with you. I will stay with you here in the Maldive Islands, but not because I think it's what God wants us to do. He said, I'll stay here with you so that you're just not here by yourself. He said, I I just don't want to leave you. And he said, but I think you're making a huge mistake. 
And I got angry with him, and I yelled at him, and I just felt like everybody was quitting. And I realized, not even then, it was later, it was years later, sitting with a friend named Warren Larson, that I realized that even missions became an idol. It wasn't about God. It was somehow about me. And it was me not willing to fail, not willing to admit that I didn't know what I was doing, not willing to admit that everything was falling apart. And so even missions can become an idol. Comfort can become an idol. If you're obsessed with comfort, which, listen, I get it. There's nothing wrong with comfort. That's the thing about idols, is that usually they're pretty good things. Comfort's a good thing. But if you idolize comfort, how will you possibly deal with the hard sayings of Christ that say, like, take up your cross? How are you going to deal with that if you're obsessed with comfort? If you're obsessed with security, your own security, Maybe you'll get you know, a little sidearm to protect yourself because your own self-protection is the number one thing. How will you deal with the idea of loving an enemy? An enemy is someone to be eradicated if you're obsessed with security. It's not someone to love. If you're obsessed with security, maybe you would idolize things in Washington. Would the prophets say to us maybe, woe to those who go to Washington? <laughs> maybe. Maybe. If we're obsessed with the idea that that's our solution, then it's going to be really difficult for you to deal with the reality that Christ has called us to be part of a global body of Christ. And sometimes the decisions that even get made in places like Washington have a deep, deep impact on our brothers and sisters in Christ that are across borders. If you think that your church is the church, that's a dangerous place to be. Your church is part of a body, right? We have been uh, baptized and brought into a new creation with a new life and a new kingdom, and it's not a kingdom of this world. So we have to be careful. It's not that Washington is bad in and of itself, but if it becomes an idol, it becomes dangerous. The cell phone, if the cell phone becomes an idol, you don't realize that it's shaping you. It's an algorithm that's constantly feeding you ideas about yourself and lifting yourself up, and the next thing you know, selfies become the idol of your heart. And you will rationalize, we all do, you will rationalize this to convince yourselves that you're worshiping God when all you're really doing is worshiping yourself. And it's a dangerous place to be. So I said human sacrifice is often a way of looking at an idol. What if your career is your idol? My guess is that there's probably many people in this room that were sacrificed on the idol of career. Parents do it all the time. We love our careers, we love our reputations, and it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. What if it was an idol of reputation? What are you willing to do to keep the thing in your life that you say, I can't imagine living without it? That would probably be something that's getting on the edge of idolatry. And so we have to be careful and realize that what we may be saying is our Christian identity could possibly be just simply an idol that we've created in our own image, and it doesn't have anything to do with the image of God. Guys, I mean sports, seriously. I, listen, I love sports. Please don't say, you know, Caster hates sports, like, obviously. No, I love sports. I loved being at the soccer game last night. It was a tragedy at the very end of the game. It was such a good game. I love sports. But do you know how many times you find yourself when you're in the midst of a sporting event seeing another person who bears the image of God and yet you find yourself cursing them? And sometimes we say, ah, it's just part of the culture. It's sports culture. It's like, or is it? Or is it possibly that sports themselves have become an idol? For so many athletes, when they get an injury, they say things like, I don't know who I am anymore. 
Listen, if you lost it, and that would mean you don't know who you are anymore, there's a really good chance it's an idol. And so we need to explore our hearts, really be honest with ourselves and ask, Lord, keep me from idols. I love at the end of 1 John, he says this thing, keep yourselves from idols. It's like the last little statement, like, oh my gosh, what does that mean? (laughs) Keep yourself from idols. It's that serious. God takes this stuff really, really serious. If uh, power is your idol, man, if power is your idol, trust me, you'll never have enough of it. And you will use people you will use people to make yourself feel powerful because you'll constantly be feeling weak. Is an academic institution. If, intellectual, if intellect is your idol, you'll constantly be using these big words so that people think you're smart. All the while, you'll be feeling like a fraud inside and feeling incredibly dumb. It will never be enough. If friendship is your idol, you'll sacrifice everything to get friends and lose yourself in the process. Think about the idols. What are they? What are the things that are drawing you? What are the things that you think I have to have? If money is your idol, listen, money in and of itself, friendship, power, these things aren't bad in and of themselves. But if they become idols, it's dangerous. And so if money is your idol, how will you take serious the call of Christ? How will you really be able to identify with the poor if it becomes an idol? You'll do anything you can to get money. And that's the other thing that I would say is, Knowing if your identity is in Christ, which is such a kind of a cliche thing, like, all right, my identity is in Christ. What does that even mean? Well, I think it means that we identify with those who Christ identified with. And if you don't, if you don't want to identify with the least of these, you might not be identifying with Christ. If you come up with some sort of strategy that says, you know, only spend time with these people because they're the important ones. They're the ones that can help you. Don't be bogged down with these people because they can't really help you. Really? Who would Jesus spend time with? Jesus would spend time with the least of these. In fact, he says that when we spend time with the least of these, we're actually spending time with him. And so my my challenge to you is to ask yourself, Who do I want to identify with? What am I willing to identify with? Am I willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? If not, why? Why is it that when we send a missionary to a difficult place, I've had so many people say, I just don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if it's worth it. I mean, there was a time where the church would say, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. Remember that, DMOG, it's on the exam. Blood of the martyr, seed of the church. There was a time when we would say, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. But now we're in a time where people say, is it really worth it? I mean, seriously, like someone could lose their life over this. Do you really want to go and preach the gospel in a difficult place? And there's plenty of other things that we would celebrate human sacrifice for that have nothing to do with the gospel. So what do we do? I think we recognize that we are called to be a part of a body of Christ. None of us exist in a vacuum. None of you were saved on your own. I know we are all about personal salvation, but none of you were saved on your own. And none of you will fall on your own either. All you got to do is look at what happens when Christian leaders fall. It's painful to the whole body of Christ. It hurts. So find yourself in a community. Find those true friends. Augustine says his true friends are those when they see God at work and then they praise God. When they see the devil at work of them, they mourn, right? But they never question his existence because they help constitute his being. They, he knows who he is because of where he belongs, and people see him, and he sees them. Find those friends on this campus, true friends in Christ. 
Find a body of Christ where you can participate. Not a body of Christ where you are held up and celebrated because you're a hand and you look at the foot and say, "Eh, that's not really what I want to do. That's not my jam. Find a body of Christ where you can plug in, participate, know who you are. See people. The least of these. See people. And the other thing I would say is figure out what those sacrament things that you did in your life actually meant. Figure out what your baptism actually baptized you into. Figure out when you take communion, it's, it's a big deal. I mean, I know I go to an Anglican church and people say, are you Anglican? I don't like to say I'm Anglican because I think that I'm you know, somehow separating myself from the rest of the body of Christ. I do identify with the Anglican church. I love the Anglican church. And one of the reasons is communion. Because when we take communion, we are literally, I mean, this is kind of weird. I know it's a little mystical. That's why I like the Anglican church, right? I got saved in the Pentecostal church, and people think it's weird that I go to an Anglican church. But I honestly feel like the Anglican church is quite charismatic, because when we take communion, we are literally transcending time and space. We are communing, right, with the whole body of Christ across time and space, across geography. Yeah, we might have a flag of the Church of England in the back, but in reality, we are communing with the church in Nigeria, We are communing with the church in Morocco. We are communing with our future selves, with the past saints. We are communing with the whole body of Christ. And I think anything you're going to root your identity in has to be that big. It has to be part of a story where you see how your past is infecting your present being and how it gives you some hope for a future. Because if you can't project a hopeful future, you're going to have what's called an identity crisis. And to be quite honest with you guys, I fear that we are in the midst of an evangelical identity crisis. And the reason I say that is I think even the term evangelical has become an idol. I don't know what to do about it. But it's becoming harder and harder and harder to use the term. And I can't just sort of separate myself from those brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to recognize that, man, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I have to love them too. Right? Family is the easiest to not love. But we have to figure out, Lord, what are we to do? Help us. Keep us from idols. Help us to love one another and be in unity with one another as the Son is with the Father. Help the things that we're about be the things that Christ would be about. Help, the, help us to be the people that would care about the things that Christ cared about. Help us not to get swept up in the newest you know, TikTok or the newest rage. Every generation has struggled. But I, I really, really, my heart goes out to you guys because your generation is being inundated like no other generation with the newest ideas and how to find yourself. Ladies, <clears throat> I have two young daughters. I'm genuinely scared for them because of the image and the worship of the image. And I tell them, listen, if you worship the image, you'll become the image. And that's all that guys will see. And I'm so sorry that we have a culture that inundates you with that constantly. And unfortunately, guys, you're the problem. (laughs) Have a moment for a slow clap. (laughs) There are so many guys, so many guys addicted to pornography, addicted to the image. It's an idol. And I promise you, marriage isn't going to solve the problem. 
It isn't going to take away the lust. It won't. So you have to take these idols. You have to honestly search your heart and say, Lord, what are my idols? Help me. And this is the beautiful thing. You don't have to do it alone. His burden is seriously light, right? You don't have to do it alone. His yoke is easy. And it can be as simple as waking up each morning and saying a simple prayer, Lord, not my will today, but yours. And then probably an hour later, Lord, not my will today, but yours. And truly asking the Lord, Father, how would you have me live? How would you have me love today? How would you have me see people today? Who would you want me to identify with today that I might see myself and my life hid with yours? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Help us. Don't let us become like the idols we worship. Show us what they are and help us to destroy them. Father, don't let us be blind to the work you've called us to do. Don't let us be deaf to your word. And Father, help us to speak in a way that glorifies you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, we're done. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.